Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. 19 years. Still struggling with a little acne, you know, but but we're on our way out. We're excited about that. It's, It's been... Such a crazy journey um, to think that over the last 18 years, we've helped plant like 16 churches, launched a bunch of nonprofits. And what's beautiful about that to me is it's as you all are just being the church that other people are noticing, right? As, as you serve, people are paying attention. And the vision, the New Testament vision of the church really is that we would be the church, not build it, but that we'd be the church and we display the kingdom and glorify the king. And we have, by God's grace, been able to participate with him in the kingdom. And we have failed miserably over and over and over again, but by God's grace, we're still here swinging. And so, yeah. I mean, that's the best we can say, right? We're still swinging. Should we do another year? Let's, yeah, okay. Then me and that guy are going to do it. And you guys can come if you want. Thank you, brother. Uh, (laughs) We are, uh, tonight, we have the Covenant Community Gathering. And uh, basically, that is sort of Omago's version of membership. And we would really ask that you're part of the Covenant community, that you would come and join us tonight as we celebrate, as we reflect, but also as we look forward to the obstacles and the opportunities that God has put in front of us. There'll be some breakout sessions, uh, time for Q&A for you to be able to talk with some pastors and elders and leaders, and um, we would just invite you and ask you to be there. We're going through a series called The Good God, and the reason that it's called The Good God is because we're looking at who is this God before we get to the gospel, before we get to creation and salvation and redemption, we have to answer the question, who is God and what is God like? And our answer to that question really does sort of affect everything. If we believe that God is distant and angry with us, that's going to affect our outlook, our perspective. If we believe that God is a God of anger and vengeance and He's keeping score, that's going to affect whether we ever would tell anybody about a God like that or not, or whether we even would like a God like that. And in the historical, biblical, Christian stance has always been that our God, the Christian God, is a triune God, is a God that is Father, and that Father is always loving and giving His life to the Son. And the Son is always in turn receiving and responding to the Father in love and in worship. And the Spirit is bringing together and making beautiful this relationship. Um, That's a very different God than God who is just almighty or a God who is just ruler. 
And today we're going to look at creation. Why would it matter that the kind of God that created the world is a good God, is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And the reason that it matters is because what we understand about why the universe is here and what we're doing here has everything to do with things like meaning and purpose and why why should I go on through the hard times, perseverance and redemption. We never get to those things without asking first, how did we get here? It's interesting that of all of creation, all of the animals in, uh, of creation, that human beings have uh, the ability to be conscious about our consciousness. Right? To think about questions like, why am I here? Like my dog, I don't think, asks that question. I don't think he's like, man, you look down today, Baxter. What's wrong? It's like, I'm just... I don't know if any of it matters, really. I just don't. And then you throw a sock, and he's like, oh, that's fine now, I'm going to go. Right? He's, he's easy to detract. But we're conscious of our own consciousness, which is fascinating to me. And so I want us to start with Genesis chapter 1. This is sort of the creation narrative, the poetry uh, in the first book of the Bible. And the first few verses say, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And throughout that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 narrative, these are uh, the genre of literature is poetry, and it is our creation account, our how did we get here. And throughout the narrative, this God is creating ex nihilo, out of nothing. And, and out of nothing, this is coming to be. And the Spirit is hovering over the matter that's there. And it's taking shape as God speaks it into being. And then when we get to verses 26 and 27, we get this illusion of the Trinity or that something more is going on within the Godhead. It says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God He created them. Male and female, He created them. And and that image of God is uh, Imago Dei in Latin. That's what we name the church after. That that everyone bears this intrinsic value. Everyone matters because we bear the image of God. And that we were put here in this kind of global garden to steward, to care for creation. That's why creation care really matters to God. We were to steward it, not just sort of scrape it for all the money that we can get out of the earth. We are to leave it to generations past and to make it better. So things like environmentalism and these things matter in the biblical narrative. But it also matters 
the fact that we, each and every one of us, and each and every person outside of this uh, church matters because they are image bearers, whether they know it or not. There's this intrinsic worth and this intrinsic value. And so when we think, though, back before Genesis 1, what was going on? In other words, what propelled God to create? What would bring about this desire to create? And our our answer to that really does matter because it shapes what creation exists for. And so if God was lonely and he just was like up there being lonely, and then he creates to sort of pacify his loneliness, that's kind of a weird God. Um, I don't think we're here because God was lonely. If God was so in need of something or someone to glorify him, so he created, in other words, he's like, I need people to recognize that I'm really God. And so I create you, and I create this world, and now I need you to glorify me. Like, that's not God. God, by definition, does not need anything else to be God. So a needy God is a really bad thing. You know, like, come on, creation, glorify me. I'm feeling down today. That he wanted worshipers or wanted servants. The, one of the great ancient Near Eastern texts creation origin story called the Enuma Elish talks about this god Marduk and Marduk is the creator god and he creates so that all the other gods can have slaves and servants and so if our idea of God is this solitary god this scary god and creation is full of his fear And he can't be loving or good because there's nothing or no one to love and no one to be good to before creation begins. But our God isn't lonely. And our God for all eternity has been satisfied with the glory of the love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son is always there to glorify the Father. And the Father is always taking pleasure in the Son. And the Spirit is always communicating and shining with that Shekinah glory of God. God was not in need. He wasn't like something's missing here. He was fully satisfied within the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Father, by nature, is life-giving. He is always giving life to the Son. And the Son is always receiving and responding that, that, to that life and to that love. And so it's natural for the Father and Son to continue to bring about more life and to create to create more things to give life to and more love to bear and to bring about the wisdom and the mystery of this love in a vast and ever-expanding universe. He has always enjoyed the Son, so it's natural for the Father to create more that He and the Son can enjoy together. And so Jesus really becomes the blueprint for creation when we come to the gospel of john john the apostle writes his sort of genesis 
remix, right? And talks about how this came to be. Because Jesus is the one that is eternally loved before creation. And creation is simply an extending outwards of love to be enjoyed by others. In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, or the Logos, the logic of creation. And John is using the term Word for Son, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning. And through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And so the Son is the agent of creation. As the Father pours His life and His love into the Son, the Son then turns and displays that love and life through creation. And then, as creation has fallen, as creation goes sort of bankrupt and humanity rebels against God, This God is not a deistic God. He isn't just first cause. But He is a God that is intimately in relationship with His creation and joins His creation in order to redeem it. So in verse 12 of John's first chapter, he says, Yet to all who did receive Him, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And so it's this picture of Genesis 1, 26 and 27 that, that, that humans are created in the image of God and in John's retelling, we are now brought in not just to a humanity where we bear the image, but into a relationship where we are actually the very children of God. And then in verse 18, he sa- 14, he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And as that Word becomes flesh, the Son's mission is to reveal the Father to us. And so in verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. And so creation is much more than just a mysterious reality that we find ourselves in. But it is that which has come forth from a very good Father through the Beloved Son by the Eternal Spirit and is for the sake of being brought in to the relationship that the three share, that we might be sons and daughters of God ourselves. I know that this is a wild story, right? When we are surrounded by sort of a, uh, an atheistic reality that we are all just here and we just came here, This story sounds too good to be true through a Darwinian lens of every person for themselves. But what if it really is true? 
What if this is the story as Jesus believed it to be? What if ultimate reality is that there is a very good God who overflowed in love and life to create a very good creation and you, as the person that you are sitting there with all of your joys and troubles, are the object of that creation so that you would be redeemed and brought into the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Then that would have to be a very good gospel. That would have to be very, very good news if we truly believed it. In the book of Romans, the Father loves the Son so much that He overflows with love so that Jesus can be the firstborn, the resurrected Christ, can be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. It says this, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So Paul is saying that before the world was created, that Jesus, the One who came as the Son of God and took on flesh and conquered sin and death and rose again, would be the first of many sons and daughters, many brothers and sisters. Paul repeats this idea in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of His will. Which, what Paul is pointing at is the same thing that John is pointing at, is that before God created, in the imagination of the three, the Father, Son, and Spirit, there was a very good design in which creation would be caught up into the love of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And that isn't just in some generic way, but gets down to the very particular choosing of you before the creation of the world. You to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God through Jesus Christ. And then you ask, well, why would that be? And Paul ends with, in accordance with the pleasure with His pleasure and will. Because He's a good God. And He takes pleasure in loving you. And He takes pleasure in creating a world to put you in. And a world for you to steward and to enjoy and to find meaning. And He takes pleasure ultimately in bringing you in so that you are related to the Father through Jesus. And just as the Father loves Jesus, so Jesus has loved you. Jesus enjoys having siblings just as the Father enjoys having a son. 
And what's the Spirit doing? Well, the Spirit, just as the Spirit is hovering over in Genesis, hovering over the formless and void and making it beautiful, so in the New Testament, the Spirit, the breath of God, is bringing about new creation, bringing new life, regenerating our soul, taking us from death to life, and forming us into the image of Christ the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who were all participants in the original creation, are also all three participating in your new creation. And so when we think about a good God who creates a good creation, and He has good plans for those who bear His image, and those who have come to know the Son, And He's put a glorious creation around us of which we are part with a powerful redemption. What difference does it make? Well, it matters when we look at the world around us. I want to show you just a few slides. So when we look at the universe, we know that there are, we don't know how many galaxies they are, but it's anywhere from 200 million to billions of galaxies just like ours in this ever-expanding universe, that this infinite God has created an infinite universe for us to dwell in. And at times, as these creatures who can also be conscious of ourselves in this world, and I think about this ever-expanding universe, and I'm like, but we are on this little tiny dot called Earth, and on this whole planet, then it goes all the way down to like us here in this room. And you're like, why would God care about that? And yet, if we were to look at like the cells in your body, the individual cells, we know that one cell being sick or healthy can take out the whole thing. And so just because we're small and finite doesn't mean we're not significant. And who knows what other galaxies Jesus is messing with. (laughs) I'm not going to go there. Um, (laughs) This is not Portland, um, but this gives you a different picture of, you know, the earth that floats out in space at just the right tilt of the axis that spins just the right amount of time every day, orbiting just the right amount of time around the sun throughout the year, just happened to be there? Or is there something about the goodness of this creation that would create a space where life could not just exist, not just like amoeba in a Petri dish, but life, like lots of life. And so we look at the world around us and there's life everywhere around us. From from the ocean, which I don't know if you like to swim in the ocean. Uh, Some of you do. I like to just look out and make sure I can get away when when I finally see the shark coming into view. You see it out there? No, it's not there. Um, Next, whales, right? Like they're awesome. I, I, was fishing, I was fishing in Mexico one time, and they were like slapping the water right there. And yet, I'm not sure the whale was like, if he was going like, why am I here, Rick? What's the point of it all? But I was just like, dude, amazing. 
and then babies. Like this sperm and egg got together and they fertilized and then they turned into a zygote and then it starts forming and then bam, out pops like another image of God, this miracle, right? Now in three months after you have the baby, you're like, oh my gosh, it cancer, you know? But in the, in the moment, you grasp it. Like, this is miracle. And we are all so numb to ordinary miracle that is all around us. The other thing I think about creation in the goodness of God is the idea of symmetry, right? Like, evolution didn't have to be symmetrical. We could all be monstrosity, Right? Even from like your digestive system, I'm always wondering like, how come we didn't evolve and just like barf all the time? Like, right? And it's just like, oh, it's normal. It's what we do, uh, right? But there's symmetry to it. There's design. There's order. There's beauty. There's carefulness that's gone into it. And so, no matter, I don't want to argue about how it happened, but I am interested in who was behind it, and is it really? possible in other words for some of you you go it's a it's such a stretch to believe that there was a good father and a good son and a good spirit behind this good creation but isn't it just as much of a stretch to believe that it all came out of nothing without purpose without intent and without design and then what is the point of it all it's difficult to answer But if our good God gave us this good creation, this powerful redemption, this sort of glorious and eternal love for us, then everything matters, right? Everything matters. It means there is meaning. It means there's hope. It means that history is going somewhere. It means that you will have to persevere because life is hard and sin has gotten involved pretty heavily in this creation. But it also would call us to not give up because your life matters. Who you are and what you do matter. And then I think about worship and I think to myself, like, if God, if you are that good, why isn't that it's not sinking in more to our hearts and to our experience? Like the goodness of a loving Father and Son coming after you in Christ by the Spirit, giving you the beauty of creation all around you. Why does it not sink into my literal experiences? If this is ultimate reality, why is it not in my immediate reality. And I believe that the problem at the core truly is the spirit of this age, which is cynicism. Cynicism is uh, is this place where nothing really is that good, where we have been disillusioned by something in the past so that everything is skeptical everything is suspect and true goodness and true hope and true joy those kind of things can't permeate cynicism cynicism is definitely the spirit of our city and it's in many of our hearts and i understand 
I understand the disillusionment, the fear that, because it feels like on the other side of cynicism is this sort of um, empty idealism that doesn't ask hard questions, it just assumes it's all true, right? That has a very shallow faith and shallow theology. But what we mistake for authenticity often is the rejecting that sort of Pollyanna, pie-in-the-sky Christianity. What we reject it for and then we mistakenly embrace is a cynical spirituality. And cynical spirituality has no room for faith, has no room for love, has no capacity for worship. It cripples love for one another because even within the context of community, someone who is experiencing hope and freedom and joy is too intimidated to express their authentic worship to the Father and the Son and the Spirit for fear of what the cynics might say. The problem is both with cynicism and idealism. Disillusionment and blind agreement. Idealism has no room for reality, for real sin and brokenness, for deep faith and questions. In a fallen world where we have been marred and scarred, that kind of shallow idealism won't work. But the mistake would be to think that disillusioned cynicism will. When in reality, that cynicism will crush life-giving faith in a good God. And so what do we do? What do we do if this is truly the story? If our God is as good, if not better, than we would ever hope and imagine this God to be? Well, the answer I would suggest is hopeful realism this is a term coined by andrew byers in his book faith without illusions hopeful realism it's hopeful because we truly do believe and we love and trust the good god and we bank our hope on the actual life the actual death the actual resurrection of Jesus and the literal new creation that he is bringing into our world by the Spirit. We actually do hope in those things. But it's also realistic, meaning that things are not the way they're supposed to be. The Bible never gives us a shallow uh, book full of banalities for Christians. It isn't la-la land. The Father, Son, and Spirit are engaged in actual spiritual transformation on the ground at the bedrock of our core fallenness and brokenness. The Father, Son, and Spirit are engaged in actual spiritual warfare, battling against real evil and defeating it in a very real world. And the Father, Son, and Spirit will actually do reign right now in us and in the world and ultimately will be victorious. And that will be realized finally and forever. And so there's a hopefulness that we are supposed to carry. Not a cynicism, but a hopeful realism. 
And if we're going to experience how truly good our God really is, it's going to require that we repent of our cynical spirituality, which isn't spirituality at all, by the way, but spiritual illness at its heart. It just is. And, it's, and we're going to need to exchange the sin of cynicism, not for some blind idealism and shallow faith, but we exchange that sin of cynicism for a discerning heart that refuses to ignore brokenness, but also demands that we trust that God is who He says He is. We're going to resist letting that brokenness and doubt and pain give birth to a cynical spirit, which is ultimately an unbelieving spirit. And most of us, if we're honest, we're derailed by cynicism. It's the spirit of our time and our city and many of our hearts. And honestly, we have good reasons, right? We have good reasons to be cynical as we look out at the American evangelicalism and what it's kind of turned into. It's easy to be cynical about those things. Jesus, though He came very prophetically and turned over a lot of the spiritual mistakes that were being made, but he never moved to cynicism. He was prophetic. And the difference between a prophet and a cynic is that cynics get angry and prophets feel anguish. Right? The prophet laments and grieves and weeps over a city, weeps over the church. The prophet has sympathy for human frailty and empathy for God. And so yes, we are to be prophetic witnesses, but that is not angry cynics. And to respond when we see the church in error as though we are part of that church that's in error. So how will we show what faithfulness looks like? If God did create this good God created to spread the goodness of His own relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit, that that goodness would spread out beyond Him into creation and through creation into us and through His Spirit to bring about this bride called the church. That means you have been included in that relationship that has been for all eternity. And there is reason for sincere hope even in the midst of a fallen world. It means that there is reason for sincere faith even in the midst of questions. It means that there's reason for Spirit-empowered worship of this God even though you know the weakness of your own faith. This is a moment of opportunity for us, Imago Day. For 19 years, we have sought and fought to be a faithful church. And we have failed. And we have missed the mark. And we have succumbed to our own sin. And I would never ask you to put your hope in this church. It's important that all of us 
come to grips with our disillusion that we have towards the church and to one another, the sooner we do, the better we will be at clinging to God. And I didn't say this. This is from Bonhoeffer. Listen to what he says, because I know some of you are going to email me. Just, <laughs> just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and with ourselves. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all of its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. And what Bonhoeffer is trying to say is we weren't called to put our hope in one another. We weren't called to expect each other to be something more than we are. But we were called to cling to each other as we cling to Christ. To call each other and hold each other as we hope in Christ. We are not and never will be a perfect church. It shouldn't even be on the agenda of attempts. But we do have a perfect Father. And we have trusted in a perfect Savior. And we are sustained by a perfect Spirit. And that Spirit draws more and more of Himself into us so that we can be more and more of who Christ has called us to be. And I believe that God desires for our church to find freedom from cynicism. To be free. Not free to be fake, but free to hope. Free to to look at real goodness and feel its wonder and its, its goodness, its kindness, its gentleness, its hopefulness. The hope for the cynical heart is not a perfected humanity or a perfect strategy or agenda. The hope for a cynical heart is to put your hope in the Good Father and the good Son, and the good Spirit who created you and this miraculous creation to spread the goodness of His life and His love. Let's pray. I just want to take some time before we move to the table and we move to worship just to create some space to ask the Holy Spirit to search us, to reveal our cynicism to us. And I know this isn't a moment in time thing, but I'd like to get us started. And so if you would just, if you want to respond, just put your palms out to receive. I want to ask that the Holy Spirit would reveal the cynicalness, the illness in our heart. And that he would begin to work and bring healing and restoration. And that the Father would set us free.
God, we come to You in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We come confessing today, God, that we have the illness of cynicism. And that cynicism that has scalded and marred and calloused our heart to Your goodness and Your beauty and Your truth. And Holy Spirit, as the psalmist prayed, we pray that You would come and You would search our heart. You would search in me. That You would test my heart and try me. And that You would reveal what is unclean and what is sick in me. That I could confess it to You, Holy Spirit. And then Jesus, that you You would take that thing from me and that You would cover it with Your blood and that You would bury it in the empty tomb and You would forgive it and throw it as far as east is from west and remember it no more. And then, Spirit, would You come and give life and give freedom and bear fruit in a hopeful and realistic heart. And where You are, I would just invite You to begin to confess to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit the cynicism that is being revealed to You now. Just begin to confess in Your own words and tell God, And forgive these sins and purify us of all unrighteousness as Your Word says. And Father, would You declare over my brothers and sisters and me that we are, in fact, clean and forgiven. But would You restore unto us a pure heart? Protect us from the jadedness that we so easily grab onto. Give us that childlike faith, God, to receive the goodness of the Father, the beauty of a butterfly, the magnanimous size of creation, to be caught up in the wonder of your love and your hope and your truth, and to not let the Word on the street become the Word in our heart, but to let Your Spirit reign. Father, would You set us free to worship now? Not not cognizant of those around us, but free in our spirit to communicate authentically true gratefulness and true thankfulness to You. And God, would You this year convert this congregation and that we would be people of great hope, realistic, engaged, dirt under our fingernails, servants of You, but grounded in the trust that You have risen from the dead, that You are coming again, and that Your kingdom is breaking in right now right this minute here in Portland as it is in heaven. Come Holy Spirit, I pray as we worship you now. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, 
please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.